Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hey, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. We're getting close to the end of the year, but we have, I think this is our last game we're going to review before we uh, do our top of 2021 episode. This is Final Girl, which is a solo-only game. Peter, with this and Warp's Edge, you're just totally uh, breaking your own rules, man. I know. We started out as only co-op, and we actually kept that going for, what, four plus years? (laughs) Well, you and me anyway. I I know there was other people that had covered solo stuff on the podcast, but, you know, during a global pandemic, there's much more solo games coming out than there ever was before. Yeah, and it's not like we, I mean, we've been doing solo coverage on the YouTube channels for years, so yeah, we we, we love solo and co-op games equally. (laughs) And as you pointed out, this game can kind of be played co-op, you just have to play one character. Plenty of games do that, right? They split up your actions, whatever else. Somebody can roll the dice, somebody else can decide what you want to do, or you just make those decisions together. So there's a little bit of co-op in this solo game. Yeah. And our design discussion today is going to be about movement in card games and like having a board in card games. We brought that up for this one because this is based uh, mostly on the system for hostage negotiator. And by the way, this is a game from Van Ryder Games, and I think it's worth pointing out that we got a review copy of this, and also uh, Van Ryder published our first uh, game design, Salvation Road, just to put that out there. But yeah, we're going to talk about uh, whether a board can add something to a uh, card game like this, or uh, when it works well and when it doesn't. And also, we just want to call out uh, some of our amazing Patreon supporters. If you've not seen the recent news, we've upped the uh, fun coming from our Patreon If you support at the $3 level or more, then you get access to exclusive content, at least one video, and at least like, well, actually at least two videos a month, I think we're going to do. We already have one that's uh, my top 10 games that I shouldn't like, but I do anyway for some reason. And actually, right after we're done this episode, Peter and I are going to record a video kind of related to Final Girl talking about our five favorite horror movies for each of us. But we also want to thank some of our amazing patrons by name. This week, we're thanking Victor Velasquez, a co-op lover, Marcel Claxton, a co-op lover, and Stephen Schaefer, a co-op MVP. So Victor, Marcel, and Stephen, and all of our amazing patrons, we really appreciate you. Uh, you helped to defray the cost of putting on the podcast, buying games, buying equipment, going to cons. We're going to PAX U this weekend to do some coverage there. So uh, yes, thank you so much for your amazing support. And thanks to everyone who watches or listens or comments or uh, leaves reviews for the podcast. We appreciate any way you're involved in our community and uh, we appreciate you. Nice. So before we get into everything, we usually talk about what we've been playing lately. I think people are tired of hearing me talk about Marvel Champions and Marvel Crisis Protocol, but I have played something else, Gaia Projects, which is another game I talk about quite a bit, but I played this competitively and I played it on Board Game Arena. So we don't talk about competitive games, but it is one of my top solo games of all time, my number two right behind Marvel Champions. And it's a a really good implementation. Unfortunately, there is no solo on Board Game Arena, but it does a really good job of the competitive game. So I want to shout that out for people who got into the game because of the solo mode, but want to try it competitively. It's a great place to play it is uh, Board Game Arena. Nice. So what else have you been playing, Peter? I got back to A Tale of Pirates. I know we covered that on, I think, our one-year anniversary episode. Nick and I covered that, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that game is still fun. For those of you who don't remember, it is a real-time game with sand timers where you're flipping over a sand timer representing yourself and you're putting them somewhere on this beautiful 3D 
pirate ship. It's made of all cardboard, but it turns around in different directions and you have to fire cannons off the, uh, you know, starboard or port to shoot different things. And you're turning your ship and you don't have to know what the words starboard or port are. I was just trying to show my <laughs> cleverness there. <laughs> But uh, it's a lot of fun, and it's definitely very kid-friendly. All you're doing is putting a sand timer somewhere, and you wait till it expires, and then you get to do the action that's there. Now, in a two-player game, the way we've been playing it, you use two sand timers each. I think it increases the complexity a little bit, because you not only have to pay attention to what's going on with your sand timer, you got to pay attention to two, and you have to figure out what the next two actions you want to do is. And it's really crazy, especially games like this, right at the beginning of the game, because all of them are the same length sand timers, right? So Nick and I each put two sand timers in and we really know what we want to do for those first actions. But for some reason, we never discuss what we're going to do for the next actions where all of a sudden, all at once, we have to do like a bunch of stuff. And it's like, oh, wait, we have to do two more actions again, really quickly in succession. And we have no idea what we're going to do. So uh, (laughs) I'm sure there are people that are better at the game than us, but we certainly have fun with it every time we play it. It's one of the most cool productions that three ship that you build is really fun to play with. And you do different missions so the game ramps up in complexity as you go along and it's just fun doing the different missions even though it's not an over complicated game it's definitely the kind of thing that's fun to play with kids and just fun to play when you're in the mood to just i, I wouldn't even say chill out because you're doing it fast but it is still more of a relaxing game because you do have 30 seconds between each of your decisions so you have plenty of time to think and talk about it if you want to yeah i had fun with that one too My kids kind of liked it, but I borrowed it from you like, gosh, at least a year ago, if not two years ago. So I think maybe I'll borrow it from you again at some point and see if they're older and more uh, enjoying the pirate thing more. (laughs) Yeah. And just so you know, I mean, because it's been a while since we started this podcast, Nick's 14 now. So, I mean, he's an older kid. He's a teenager, you know, doesn't want to spend all that much time with dad, likes playing video games. He's really gotten into the pirate theme lately. And he saw it on the shelves the other day. He's like, oh, man, I love that game. And so we brought it out again, and he loves it just as much now as he did when he was 10. So it's definitely a game that had some staying power. And, you know, once they get to that 10-plus-year-old age, I think it'll be good for him. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, as for me, uh, I've gotten a lot of things at the end of the year. This is a pretty busy time for, like, coverage. Not as many uh, Kickstarters, which I'm happy about, because I I was doing way too many of those (laughs) in, like, September, October, November. But just a lot more, like, review copies. I've been playing two war games by David Thompson. Uh, One is the Undaunted Reinforcements expansion, which adds uh, official solo play and some other stuff to uh, Undaunted Normandy and Undaunted North Africa. I actually have that on my table right now to do a playthrough tomorrow, probably. So that's an expansion for both, right? Which is kind of unique in our industry. Correct. Yeah, and it actually has a box that fits everything. So it kind of replaces the boxes for both games. And uh, for those who don't know, I designed my own solo variant for Undaunted Normandy. So this is going to be one of the weirdest reviews I've ever done because they made 80% of like the same choices that I did. <laughs> and where they didn't, sometimes I agree and sometimes I disagree. So I'm going to have to try to like take that aside a little bit when I do like the review of the game overall. But yeah, it's, it's definitely been weird because I don't think I've ever played a like official solo where I'd already made an unofficial solo. So that, that's been interesting. And uh, speaking of solo and uh, design, well, first of all, if y'all didn't hear, we have launched the pre-order or Blacklist Games launched the pre-order for Peter and I's newest game design, which is Mega Man Adventures. That's uh, right. Mega Man, the famous Capcom video game series. So that's up for pre-order on Blacklist right now. We've got two playthroughs on the uh, the main channel if you want to watch that. So yay for that, <laughs> Peter. You excited to finally have a game uh, out there again? I am. It's been a little while. You know, we've spent a lot of time doing media and content for the last couple of years. It's good to have a game out there again. And hopefully we'll have some more exciting news soon with some projects we're working on as well. 
That's right. In terms of my solo variant design work, I've got two that I'm looking at. One is I'm, I'm brainstorming. And I think I already have a pretty good concept for how to do uh, steampunk rally unofficial solo. And then another one is Super Fantasy Brawl, which is like a, a tactical objective based sort of MOBA-ish game. And I, I think I've also got the solo mostly at least concepted out. I got to like actually get the stuff done. So yeah, a lot of fun design work and like not just playing other people's games lately. So that's uh, definitely cool. Well, that's interesting because that's a genre of games that doesn't have great solo modes out for them yet. The only ones I know of are like Sky Terror has something, which is kind of a similar tactical game. There are some Marvel Crisis Protocol. There's one official and a couple of unofficial modes of playing solo. And that was pretty fun. I know Rangers of Shadow Deep is another one, which is more of a miniatures game. But again, very similar tactical combat game that has a solo mode. So I'm curious to see what you do with it, because... I think these are harder to design than people realize, or at least to design them well. So I'm curious to see what you do with it, because who knows, maybe it'll lead to us making a tactical miniatures game with some solo stuff in the future. Well, and the thing that's making this one a little bit more straightforward is that it's a very small, like tight arena, and the game is very objective focused. So you kind of have obvious objectives for the AI to focus on at any given moment, and they only have three heroes at a time. So, you know, we'll see how it works in practice. (laughs) As you well know, Peter, with our own designs, it's fine to like say, hey, the game's going to play like this. Then you got to actually like make that happen. And it might not work at all the way you thought it would. Well, and I think we've seen that from other publishers as well. When we go to play their Kickstarter games, when they're like, oh, yeah, this has got a solo mode. And then they just clearly threw it together. And they're like, this should work and give us the rules for it. And we're like, Yeah, no, that doesn't work at all. So I I think this is not unique to us. I think a lot of times people are like, oh, it's going to be super easy to do a solo mode for this and then realize how not easy that is, that it is actually crafting and designing a whole new thing. And along that vein, I actually forgot one that I played recently, which was Keyforge Adventures. There is a new Keyforge Adventure. This one's unofficial, but it is from somebody who just sent us an email and he's like, hey, I came up with this new Keyforge Adventure. I know you like the other one. See how it plays. Sticking with that pirate theme from Tale of Pirates, it was pirate themed and it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Same with most of the Keyforge Adventures. I think they're better for one or two players than with higher player counts, but I really enjoyed what I was doing. I think he did a great job. It was very similar to the first one, Rise of the Key Rackin, but I think he did some things better than they had done in that one. So I'm curious to see if anybody else starts coming up with Keyforge Adventures or if he comes up with more himself. Yeah, I, I saw that email and that's super cool. I mean, I, I just got to say, we, we, we know this well, but the board gaming community can be incredibly generous and awesome. So uh, yeah, really cool of somebody just to reach out and be like, hey, I got awesome adventures for one of your favorite games. Try them out. And it was fun. And I'm, I'm glad I played it for sure. Future Peter here just wanted to say the name of that Keyforge adventure is The Royal Fortune, and there are links to the rules, print and play, and tabletop simulator version in the show notes. All right. So uh, with that, we've also been playing a lot of Final Girl. I should explain, because not everyone knows this term, but this is a horror-themed game, which is why we're going to do this exclusive video afterwards, kind of like an After Dark (laughs) episode, uh, talking about our top five horror movies. But yeah, the, the term Final Girl was coined based on movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and uh, Halloween. Those are two of the first ones. Oh, and Black Christmas. Those are like the first three. And that's where not only do you have a slasher where some uh, almost unkillable force is chasing people down, often young teens, 
But specifically uh, in most of those movies, the final character who survives and often defeats the enemy in some way is a female character. Mm-hmm. So you got this idea of like the final girl, like Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, Laurie Strode in Halloween being one of the most famous ones. Uh, yeah, so this is a game that you can buy a core set and then you can add on as many killer sets as you want. Each one has an iconic, like, well, I should say a killer based on an iconic killer. They don't actually have the IPs. And then also a location based on an iconic, like, kind of horror location. And then you can mix and match them. Well, it's pretty obvious, though. One of them's at a campsite and he's got a mask on, even if it's a pig mask. You know, his name's Hans instead of Jason. But he looks enough like Jason, but clearly differentiated enough that they're not going to get sued for it. <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty clear. There's one that's in a boiler room and attacks you when you're sleeping at night for uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And uh, it's on a street, too. It's not Elm Street, but I can't remember the name. It's it's Maple Street, I think. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they make it pretty obvious. But yeah, so that's sort of the theme. Peter, you want to talk about the mechanics a little bit? Sure. It's actually, if you've ever played Hostage Negotiator... It plays almost identical to that as far as your card play goes. Now the board play is different. But basically, you're going to be on a board, and so is the killer, and you're going to have victims all around the board. But on your turn, at the beginning of your turn, you're going to play whatever cards you have in your hand. And you can play as many or as few of those as you want. And they may move up or down a time track, and that time track is going to be the money you have to buy new cards at the end of the turn. Now, none of these are permanent cards. They come into your hand, you use them for the next turn, and then you could keep them from turn to turn and add more cards to that. Or you might play all of them out on one turn and then not have very many cards at all for your next turn. So you're basically, you have between this time mechanic and this card play mechanic, you play cards that'll help you move around the board. They might help you attack the villain. You might have cards that you buy that stay in your hand just for defense. You may have cards that help you search locations. That you could have cards that help you affect the horror level of the camp at all. Maybe you're calming everybody down and making them calm down or buy you more time. If you plan your actions out better, it'll give you more time that you can use to buy more cards at the end of the round. So all these actions are going to cost you some combination of time. And then you're going to have to make a dice roll to see how successful you are. And typically it's zero successes, one success or two successes. Zero successes is going to be the worst outcome, which might even make you end your turn right then and there. Other cards will just have a penalty. Maybe the horror level goes up in the camp if you fail. And maybe you still get to do the thing. Maybe you don't. So there are a lot of different things that happen with these cards. But that's the basic and the most common thing that's going to happen. You're going to be playing these cards to do different actions. When you're done playing the cards with whatever time you have left over that you hadn't spent, then you are going to buy cards from the offer. And these cards are going to be the same from game to game. Some of the scenarios have specific cards for them, but most of the time you're going to just get better attacks, better movement cards, more things to help you calm the camp down. So very similar cards to the starting cards you have. And the interesting part is, though, any card you played last turn is not available to buy right now. And that includes all your starting cards. You have six of them, which cost zero. So you get them back in your hand, but you can't get them back the turn you played them. So you're going to buy cards, add them to your hand, and then all those cards that you played this turn, you're going to put back in the offer, again, including those zero-point cards. Then the killer gets their turn. Typically on the killer card, it's going to have an action that they're going to do. A lot of times, they just kill something in their space. Now, later on, that action will accelerate, which makes them probably move and kill something. And then you turn over one of these terror cards, and it's going to have them do something else. The terror card deck is interesting because it comes not only from the killer's cards, but there are also location cards. And you can mix and match. We were talking about the killers and the locations, but you don't have to play Jason in the camp. You can play Jason on on Maple Street or Hans, I guess, in this situation on Maple Street. So you you mix and match those two cards, you shuffle them together, and you're going to get these deck of tarot cards. 
And then you were going to resolve one of those after the killer does their actions at the end of the turn. And then after you resolve the killer's phase, you just clean up and you start again with your actions at the beginning of the turn. If all those terror cards run out, there are going to be 10 in that terror deck. Then the villain's going to go to its final stage, which is, again, is going to change their abilities. They also will get more powerful every time they kill victims throughout the course of the thing. They're going to get more and more powerful. You can also rescue those victims, which will level up your character. So there's a little bit of leveling and progression in there as well, usually having to do with the victims around the board. All right. So uh, let's get into it. If you haven't listened to us before, welcome to the show. And what we do is we'll each go through our top five uh, aspects or elements of the game and its design, starting from our number five to our number one. So all important things, but from uh, least to most important. So uh, I guess I'll start off, Peter. And my number five is the emergent story of this one. And this is uh, something that I think to really, really love this game, you're going to need to kind of appreciate the wacky things that can happen as you mix and match these uh, different places and killers and have these different cards coming out. And uh, if you can get into the theme, if you enjoy the horror theme at all, I think that'll help a lot too. And for me, this is a big pro because I definitely love all those things and I can like totally kind of see a story being told. This is a game where <laughs> I've won games by ridiculous margins and lost games by ridiculous margins. We'll talk more about that later. I didn't necessarily mind because... It was always a fun story. It was always like a fun time. And I enjoyed kind of seeing the uh, narrative elements that sort of happened and emerged through the play. So I think this is one of the stronger games for emergent narrative of all the ones I've played this year, for sure. Yeah, that's a good one. I have something similar to that later on my list. So I'll, I'll save my thoughts on that for now. But needless to say, I agree with you. My number five is the dice luck in the game. Anytime you want to do anything, you're basically playing a card and there are going to be three different options that happen, whether you get one success, zero success or two, as we discussed earlier. But you roll a different number of dice based on the horror level and things like that. But you could still be rolling the most dice you're really going to roll is three dice. Usually there are some exceptions to that. But for the most part, the most you're going to roll is three dice. And it's a third, a third, a third, a third of the time you're going to get a success right off a third of the time you're going to get a failure right off. And a third of the time you're going to get this uh, two card symbols, which means you can discard two cards from your hand to turn it into a success. But even with three dice on an action that you really need, sometimes you roll and just come up nothing. Now, there is a card that you can use to re-roll those dice, but you have to have that card in your hand at the time. Usually, you're going to want to have one of those cards in your hand, so it's not much of a thing, but it could still come up bad even after you re-roll that, even with the most dice. So there's definitely going to be some swinginess in the game. Now, as Mike said, it sometimes creates these fun narrative moments, and sometimes you're going to succeed when you didn't think you had any prayer at all. You know, you're going in with one dice and one third shot of just trying to get one success, and sometimes you don't care at all. Sometimes you can still do the action, just suffer some consequences along with it. Maybe it'll take extra time, or maybe you'll have to take a wound or something else to do the thing. It's a very interesting system, but I think that people that don't like dice luck or don't want that swinginess aren't going to enjoy it as much. I'm I'm amazed, Peter. <laughs> like literally amazed that number five is the dice luck. Because I will certainly be talking about that way later. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that's cool. So uh, my number four is focus on the locations. And I, I kind of broke up the modularity and like the modular aspects of the game because they each have a lot of like cool elements to them. But uh, I could have just like done like one point of modularity and kind of shoved it all together. 
But the locations have a lot of unique things going on. Peter mentioned a lot of them, but you have this deck of event cards. You start with one and more can come out. And they'll be like really weird things. Like a werewolf is hunting people at the same time as the killer is. Or your sister or your boyfriend is there and you have to protect them for a bonus. But if they get killed, you get some horrible negative thing. Or there will be a speedboat you can use. Or there will be a trolley you can ride. Or traps will be going off everywhere. So they really give, uh, again, like kind of part of this emergent narrative and the variety and the modularity. They provide a lot. As Peter said, you have this mix of terror cards from the location and the killers. It reminds me of Cthulhu Death May Die and I love that. That actually is my one complaint, even though I'd say this is a pro, the locations overall for me, is that there are very few location terror cards and a lot more uh, killer terror cards. And from a game balance standpoint, that makes sense because the killer terror cards tend to be more directly them moving and attacking, whereas the location ones tend to be more like kind of environmental and uh, might miss things more often and are kind of more like thematic than mechanically impactful. But <laughs> they're also the ones that are the most fun. And they're also the ones that bring out more events, which are also fun. So, uh, yeah, I almost wish there were, like, more location tarot cards, and I could see, like, a variant where you always use, like, five of each deck or something. But uh, that being said, I think the locations each have their own, like, special things to offer. I think the events and tarot cards and unique mechanics are a lot of fun. Like, playing on Elm Street feels very different than playing in the uh, Carnival of Blood. So, uh, yeah, I I appreciate this as one aspect of the modularity very much. Yeah, I'm going to get to that in a little bit. Uh, My number five is the production, though. And normally we don't talk about production. We usually try to stay focused on design elements, but these are the coolest boxes slash boards slash whatever else I've ever seen. So basically what it is, you have a killer and a location in each of these, what are they called? Cinematic boxes? I think it's killer boxes or killer sets. Yeah. So you have one in each, but what it is, is the box itself is the board. They're magnetized together to create something that holds all the components in for that killer. So you just take it off and you can, again, take the killer from one and you can take a location from another one. But just the magnetization and everything and how it connects together, just the production on that is really cool. They do a lot with a little. I think this game is very fairly priced and you're getting a lot of stuff for what you're paying. You get a lot of meeples, you get a lot of cards, you get a lot of plastic in it. And I don't know, it feels like a very good value for what you're getting. But the coolest thing for me is those magnetized boards. I just love how that works. And it makes me giddy to see it come to life in the game. Yeah, it is really cool. Now, (laughs) the hilarious thing is that even though I loved them, I immediately took them all apart and just put them all in one big box. (laughs) Because I'm a crazy person. But I know most people that like really nice storage solutions. I'm not one of those people will deeply appreciate these. All right, uh, my number three uh, is the other side of the main modularity, which is the killers themselves. And very similar to what I said about the locations, they are uh, very unique in feel and in theme. Each one has a uh, special mechanic or more than one special mechanic, like uh, Dr. Fright, the Freddy Krueger-like killer, will have you go to sleep and then wake up sometimes, and he'll like come chasing after you in the boiler room, and uh, he can't even hurt you when you're awake. So that feels like totally different than the other people. Some of them move faster or slower. Some of them hit harder or easier. They have very, very different terror effects in those terror decks. So even if you like put them in the same location or different locations, the way that the killers play out and kind of change even your play style sometimes can be uh, really cool. And then uh, Peter had mentioned, but they each have a unique uh, dark power to start the game, although it doesn't come into effect until they've killed a few people. They each have a unique finale card, and they they, they have uh, three or four of each of these. So even when you play the exact same killer in the exact same location, the tarot cards will be different because you have a big deck and you don't use all of them. The powers will be different. The finales will be different. 
And I just love modularity. I love exploration. So being able to kind of mix and match and play around with all of these is great. And it's sort of a number six, but I didn't mention that the final girls are also quite diverse in how they uh, gain different abilities and level up. Each one, when you flip them after saving a bunch of people, has a fully unique ability. So yeah, I think all of that is really cool. But the killers, I think, even shine a bit more than the locations, which, you know, they should in this genre. (laughs) I think that's exactly what you want to happen. Yeah, and that's my number three also. It's not exactly the same. It's the combination, as you had mentioned in your number four, combining the villain with the location with the hero. You're just going to have so much variety there. And Mike didn't mention the setup cards also. Every location's got several setup cards. And where you are, where you start, where the villain starts, and where all the victims on the board start really matter in the game. Because a lot of times, the first half of the game is you running around trying to rescue victims. First of all, if you do do that, you're going to level yourself up. And get bonuses each time you're rescuing villains. But second of all, if you don't do that, then the villain's going to end up going around killing them all. And when that happens, the villain levels up to tremendous levels of power. So the more victims you can save, the easier the end game's going to be. So I find myself running around a lot in the first half of the game. and the second half, there's no more victims on the board. It just ends up being a showdown between you and the killer themselves, which feels very thematic. But getting back to what I was saying, you just the combination of those things between the villain, the location and the different heroes in the game, because each box also comes with two final girls. So if you're talking five boxes, you got five villains, you got five locations, and each of them has two final girls in it. So you're talking 10 final girls and some may even come with the base box because it felt like there were even more final girls. I I think one of them came with the birds one. I think that's why we have 11. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, but there's just a lot of content for this game. I don't feel like you're going to play the same game twice. I basically played them as their boxes because I wanted to experience those different stories. I wanted to experience Jason at the camp. I wanted to experience the poltergeist in the haunted mansion. But I think it'd be even more fun, and I'm looking forward to this, is trying them out differently. And I think this is a Kickstarter thing, but we got two dice where you could roll them and it rolls you a location, and it rolls you a villain to fight with. I think that's really neat. It's something you could do by yourself with just a D6. You know, just number your things, one through five, one through five, and then, you know, if you roll six, just re-roll it or whatever. So I do think that's a neat way of just combining things. Also, this is probably a Kickstarter thing also, but there's a storybook that comes with it that gives you, like, a little bit of a campaign where it's like, okay, play this villain at this location, and here are some special rules to play with it, and this villain at this location. So if you want to even increase the complexity of the game more you can do that as well i don't know how readily available that is i know van Ryder pretty well though i'm sure they'll have those things at conventions or for sale on their web store so i think even with their kickstarter stuff a lot of times they become available down the road yeah absolutely all right so uh my number two this goes back to the rules Peter was talking about but those are the action cards and for me i think they did a really really nice job with these One of the things I love most about the action cards, and I don't remember Hostage Negotiator doing this as much, is that a lot of them will still give you the action you're trying to do if you're willing to suffer a cost if you fail that die roll. So they kind of have like internal mitigation within the cards themselves. Like a great example is the walking card, which is just the basic way to move around the board to try to rescue people or go fight the killer or avoid them. With the uh, worst result, rolling no successes, you can still move if you're willing to take a damage. And I think that kind of stuff is great. 
And I also like that uh, the cards can be used as currency. I forget if you said this, Peter, but you can discard them to get more time to buy more cards at the end of your turn. I didn't say that, but that's really good. And it's a really valuable skill. That was true with Hostage Negotiator, too. You really do need to use that sometimes to your advantage. Oh, I'm one short of buying this two-card combo that I really want to get. Well, you can just discard one of your zero-cost cards from your hand. You won't get it back that turn, but you'll get it back the following turn. So, yep, it's really cool. Yeah, and also something I've found the more I've played is that uh, even though I want to do like big turns and play every card I have, then you leave yourself like totally high and dry for the next turn. So I I think it was a nice kind of given pool of how many cards you use on your turn and when you do choose to save some cards, if only to have them as fodder for when you roll the die results that require you to discard two cards to change it into a success. Like you don't want to do that with like threes and fours you bought. So you sometimes want to just like hang on to zeros to uh, kind of give them as resources for the future turn. I always plan on doing that. I always plan on saving cards for the next turn. And then I roll the card symbol and I always end up discarding. Sometimes I end up discarding like three cost cards just because it's like, okay, I just can't fail this thing right now. But you know that going in too, like I don't have to take that choice, right? I don't have to take that chance of rolling the dice. I'm like, oh, I'm sure I'll get at least one success. And then when you don't, you're like, "Uh oh, now I got to discard something I really wanted. But you knew that going in. So that's one of the nice parts about that. Yeah, I just think the choices with the cards overall are fantastic here. So I really appreciate how they did all of that. Yeah, no, obviously I agree. My number two is the end game. And this I was a little mixed on. I got to be honest. You usually want to end with a bang. And a lot of the times it does, but sometimes it doesn't. And I think this is probably where you and I are like, why you were surprised that the dice luck was so low on mine. This doesn't just have to do with dice luck, though. It has to do with a lot of luck and a lot of things that happen in the game that can lead to this. The big thing for me is I don't know that there are enough victims on the board or enough victims come out throughout the course of the game. Because a lot of times, if the villain doesn't fully level up, the end game can be a little anticlimactic to me when it's just you and the villain on the board. Because a guard card, even at one success, will block two damage, which until the villain levels up, a lot of those villains don't do more than two damage. So I found just getting one guard card every turn and just, I get, there are two of them. So I get one, one turn, get one the following turn. That'll mitigate a lot of that end game stuff. Now, sometimes they'll attack twice or whatever else. So there are things that change that. But a lot of times what causes them to attack twice are those terror cards. Well, there's only 10 of them in the deck. And sometimes they even say discard a terror card, which does accelerate toward that end game. But sometimes on the back of the villain card, they're only attacking once. And again, if they're only doing two damage, there's nothing that makes that end game dynamic at that point. And if you just get a guard card every turn, you're more than likely to block it all. And I think even a failure with a guard card blocks one of the two damage. Yeah. So it's it's a little anticlimactic to me at the end sometimes. Now, if that villain levels up, or some villains are just harder for that. The Jason one definitely is. The Freddy Krueger one definitely is. But not getting those tarot cards at the end of the game will sometimes lead to a, well, it's a foregone conclusion. I'm just going to sit here and we're going to pound on each other over and over until the game's over. Yeah, no, that that is right into my number one. And yeah, I was surprised by the dice, but you're right because mine is like kind of the, the randomness and the swinginess overall. The dice are certainly part of it. Kind of my number five and my number one go together because this I'm calling a mix for most people because sometimes you're going to have a game that is a nail biter. Sometimes you're going to have a blowout on their side, and sometimes you're going to have a blowout on your side. And Peter's right, it's not just the dice. Some of the events that you start the game with are straight up making the game harder. Some straight up make it easier. Some of the terror cards are terrible. Some of them are very situational and won't really fire off that hard. 
And it's all part of them creating a unique narrative experience each time. But if you don't buy into that narrative, and you just want perfect tuned uh, balance, you're not going to really get it. You know, you'll often have games like the, the playthrough I did against Dr. Fright. I murdered that guy. <laughs> like, right. I, th- I think he leveled up twice, you know, and it's destroyed him. And I still had a great time. It's still a fun video. People enjoyed watching it. But some players would not have felt satisfied at all by that, especially solo players, which often want more consistent difficulty. So it does not bother me because I love that emergent narrative that so much back to my number five. But if you don't, and if you want very clear, fine balance, I don't know if this is a game for you. I think they cared more about creating a unique feeling narrative experiences each time you play more than they cared about making it a perfectly tuned game. Now I will say, and I think Peter, you'll agree with this. Even when you win, by a lot, I still find the choices interesting. Oh, Maybe absolutely. not on the last few turns. Like, I think you're right, Peter. At some point, like, it might just be kind of rote. Like, I walk up, I punch him, I block. I walk up, I punch him, I block. <laughs> but, you know, r- right up until the end, even when you're winning, like, how you use your cards and how you use your resources is still engaging and cool. So, yeah, it- it's just something to be aware of. And I think it is the most important thing that might push some people into not liking this game very much at all. Well, to be fair, you have to get to the end game to survive. So the first 10 turns are very tense and, you know, you're on a knife's edge a lot of times. Well, and again, you're right. There's even some variability in that. But I found a lot of times the game was very engaging up to the end game. It was just that end game. And again, not every game either where I felt that way. So I think you're right. I think it's the swinginess and it goes with the dice luck, goes with the card luck. It goes with the event luck. I want to talk to you about something after I get done with my number one. But my number one is I was not a huge fan of Hostage Negotiator. I felt like similar to what I described here with the end game, there were some obvious choices, some obvious things I would do every game. And I know some of the negotiators, some of the hostage takers themselves, (laughs) (laughs) not the negotiators, the the hostage takers changed that game up. But I don't know. It was something about the theme with that one. Just because there are real people involved. I mean, people who know me, like I don't like real war movies, but I like Star Wars and I like Marvel movies where things blow up. I just I don't like that in real life. And something about the hostage negotiator game was too close to real life for me. And so my number one here is this game just feels right. It feels like a horror game. It feels like you're running around and people are slowly dying or running off as the game goes along. It feels like as you, as the hero, are rescuing your friends, you're getting more and more resolve behind you and you're becoming more powerful as the game goes along. It's got a sense of leveling up, which Hostage Negotiator didn't have. It just feels right to me. The The feeling of the game matches the theme and it's a theme I like and it doesn't bother me as much as Hashtag Negotiator did. And I think the board elements really help as well. I think having extra options where it's not just manipulating tracks and dials, I didn't feel like this game was about manipulating tracks and dials. I felt like it was about manipulating the board. And that was one thing I also didn't like as much about Hostage Negotiator. So for me, I think they got the horror theme right. I think the villains feel like they should. I think there is a different complexity in each of the different enemies. And I like that. And I I like what they've done with this. I think they did a really good job. And I don't know, it it felt so much better to me than Hostage Negotiator did. So for me, this was a much bigger winner than I thought it would be. When you're like, oh, it's based on Hostage Negotiator. (laughs) You know, I was like, oh, great. Yeah, looking forward to that. (laughs) But no, having adding that board element and changing the theme to this horror theme really did something for me. Now, one thing I want to talk about, because we never talked about it, is the searching for items and things like that. 
maybe different people play the game differently. How often did you search for and find new items? I, I don't think I, I I can count on like one hand the number of times I have dug it through the deck. Like the only times I've done it is when there were no weapons on top because I love having a weapon and you almost need a weapon a lot of the times. Yeah. So, so yes, like th- that's the only time. But other than that, like if there was a knife or a bow or a whip or something on top of the deck, like I'd be like, yep, <laughs> there you go. That's, that's mine. And I would probably stop messing with the items. I, I still like that they're unique. And that's, that goes into another thing. Neither of us mentioned that, but when we talked about the modularity, each of the, uh, locations has unique item decks and you're gonna get different ones every time you play but yes i I think the fact that there are four cards doesn't really come into play at least with my play style yeah and i mean there's one game that messes with it and plays with it and i like that one specifically because of that although that is one of the ones that had kind of a boring end game for me but i did like that you had to search the deck like they forced you to do something you wouldn't normally do and knowing them and again with all the different knobs they found to play with with hostage negotiator i'm sure they're going to do that with this game going forward as well peter yeah i feel like you already kind of did your final thoughts so i'll jump into mine Uh, i love this game it was one of my uh, most anticipated kickstarters from last year and definitely one of my top games of this year i have a great time with it the modularity it's right in my wheelhouse theme wise the story you get the great choices with the cards the huge diversity in play each time you do it i just think it's a great and yeah, I plan, I think they're going to, they've already announced they're going to do a season two with more killers and locations. Do I need more content? No. Am I going to buy more? Probably. Uh, so yeah, I, I like this one a lot. And yeah, to what Peter said, I, I liked Hostage Negotiator a lot more than him, especially when I played it with the career mode. I think that really gave it a lot more life than it had before, but I'll probably sell all my Hostage Negotiator stuff because I cannot imagine a world where I can look at these two games on the shelf and pick Hostage Negotiator. <laughs> you know, like, at least for my taste, this one just takes everything that's good about that game and ramps it up to 9 or 10, you know. So, uh, yeah, uh, definitely a big recommend for me. And my final, final thoughts are, I like this game uh, uh, quite a bit, actually. I was surprised. And it's partially it's short playtime. I don't think we ever got into that. But each game's only about 30 minutes. And it's a 30-minute thematic experience where you really do. I mean, I don't think any game has captured the horror feel the way this one has as far as you know it feels like the movies that they're trying to emulate and i do like the fact that you can mix and match the locations with the villains things like that i do think if you like hostage negotiator you'll almost definitely like this one i think if you didn't like hostage negotiator you're just mad on it i i do think you should try this even if you didn't like hostage negotiator because that's where i was and i definitely like this one a lot lot more and i'm looking forward to playing it's great if you got, you know, an hour at some point. You pull it out, play two games back to back. Even if you play at the same location with the same villain, it's going to feel very different from game to game, like we said, just because of the, the randomness of how the cards come out and stuff. All right. So, uh, yeah, big recommendation, it sounds, from both of us. And let's get into our design discussion. So, like we said, uh, Peter said this a lot in his uh, final thoughts. This uh, partially eclipsed Hostage Negotiator for him because of that board movement. But if you look at the core mechanics, it's pretty much the same game, except now you have cards that move you around a board. And we've also seen that with uh, deck builders, like Clank introduced uh, board movement into a game that was pretty much just a kind of like deck building card focused formula. You kind of say Mage Knight did the same, although that's way more (laughs) complicated in how it uses the board. Well, and Mage Knight was before Dominion, wasn't it? No, no, no. The, the, oh, okay. n- none of those games with d- deck builder-ish uh, mechanics were for Dominion that I'm aware of. Well, and you probably don't know this one because, you know, Eurogame, but uh, Trains almost identically matched 
Dominion. I mean, the cards even did a lot of the same effects as Dominion, except you had a board where you're building train tracks around the board and you're trying to connect stations, things like that. So they did have obviously cards that that played with board play as well. But that one was very similar to Dominion. Hey, don't, don't tell me short, dude. I own trains and trains rising sun for a little while and then I got rid of them. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, I, you know, Euro game. I wasn't sure. Uh, but yeah, so I guess sticking to, we just mentioned a lot of deck builders. There's some other types of games I want to get into, but what do you think in a positive and maybe a negative way, what do you think having these locations and movement adds to these kinds of card games, especially deck builders? One, one I just thought of, which we didn't talk about even in the lead up to this is Street Masters and Sentinels of the Multiverse. Oh yeah. Good call. So yeah, no, for me, I love tactical games. I love visual games. I'm a visual person. I like seeing and feeling. Part of the reason I like board games is the tactile nature of it. And the tac- not only tactile, but tactical as well. So I like being able to feel and touch my pieces. Cards, yes, that's fine. I do like rolling dice as well. Don't need to have that. But card and dice games are fine. But I really like that tactile and that visual nature of not only hearing about what's going on. And that's, I think, a lot of times why story games lose me. But I want to see it. I want to see the action happening on the board. I'd much rather, but just seeing the story play out with the cards rather than just like hearing about it. So for me, they really do add a lot in most situations. I think there are some negatives and we'll probably get into that next. But what's your initial impressions of adding a board? Yeah, so for me, it's less, and I think people probably know this about my taste, it's less for me about like kind of the bling and the visual and tactile nature of things, although I can appreciate those. For me, I think it tends to open up the exact same design more. And this is something Peter and I struggle with a lot in our games, you know, like Mega Man uh, Adventures is one where we wanted to like have people feel like they're progressing through a side-scrolling stage, but it's all represented by cards. You can kind of put them together into like sort of a map, but not really. And I think a lot of games when you don't have a map, it can kind of take away the levers you might have as a game designer to have more diversity between characters and things. Like I think, Peter, your your example of Street Masters versus Sentinels is a great one. To get the characters to feel different, Sentinels has to lean into very, very, sometimes complex card uh, mechanics and card interactions, which I think is perhaps the game's biggest detriment for a lot of people that play it who don't like it, right? like having to track all these effects and things. And it's a great way for them to make the decks feel different. But I think one of the reasons they have to go that deep with the diversity in the decks is because they don't have as many levers and toggles to play with. So they have to basically create a new toggle for each deck that they release. You know, they have to create new mechanics and create new keywords. You see that with things like a Marvel Legendary. You know, like every set or two, (laughs) this is something Steve loves, uh, you get like, you know, two or three new keywords that might never be seen again because how else do they really change things up? I won't say that Street Masters heroes feel as diverse as Sentinels heroes necessarily, but they have a much easier time doing it because the fact that you have the movement component in there and not just your own movement, but the movement of enemies, right? You have characters who can like jump really far. You have characters who move very slowly. You have characters who push other characters, who pull other characters, who uh, can move other heroes. And it just gives you more things to play with in your design space. I think there's a lot more in a fun way going on with Clank, for example, compared to uh, some more basic deck builders. And it's not like the deck building in Clank is complicated. It's not like the cards are that complicated. I would say the card effects in Clank are way less complex on average than many of the most famous deck builders. But I think it feels like there's more going on. It feels like there's more there because the designers have more to play with in that kind of physical space. 
And I think you hit on something key there. And I mean, these are design discussions because we want to take lessons away from this. And I think that's the lesson I'm learning from just thinking about and talking about these two different aspects. I think you're right. I think it's much easier to build an easier game with more levers if you've got more components, a board, whatever else. It just gives you another dimension that you can mess with. But at the same time, it can also lead to you overcomplicating things. If you don't use just basic cards, basic actions, I feel like you can get to this point where having the board could be a detriment and make you, you know, if you try to add the same level of complexity that you would in some of these other card games and have a board, I think that's where you lose people. And so that is a key takeaway from me. If you're going to add the board in, just realize that having the board is another level of complexity in and of itself. So you want to keep that other stuff around it more basic. And I think that's a mistake that people have fallen into in the past. I can't think of exact examples, but I think you're right. Without that, you do have to go to another level of complexity. Now, I don't know that you need to, though, (laughs) because now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think Marvel Champions is that overly complex and they don't they haven't added five million keywords. Now, granted, maybe they will throughout the years, but they've released quite a bit of content at this point. And I think they do a good job of making me feel like I'm doing a lot of these superhero-y things without needing a board. And I don't know where the difference is there. And maybe it's the fact that I've just played it so much because it is so quick and easy to play solo that I've just gotten over those hurdles of complexity. But for me, it feels like they do a lot with a little there. And I think it's probably more because it's hand management. And when you play a card, it's kind of done. They don't keep modifiers around and stuff like that a lot of times. So I think that's another place where, you know, you can get astray with some of these games. That's a good transition because I wanted to talk about the LCGs next. I think Marvel Champions has sort of the least sense of space and the least like attempt to have locations. I guess like the objectives and like the villains change, but you don't really move around. And then Lord of the Rings has a little bit of it and, and more based on which quest you're playing. But generally speaking, you like build up quest points and you kind of travel to another location. You see a similar kind of thing in Warhammer uh, quest adventure card game and Heroes of Terranoth, you know, where like you're kind of progressing through a deck of location cards. and They might have effects that happen, but movement doesn't happen often. It doesn't happen too freely. And it's like kind of a major part of the game. And then you compare it to Arkham Horror, the card game. And that's basically, you know, I've heard this described as a board game, right? Like you're laying out locations that have connecting uh, intersections and stuff. And it basically becomes a board that is composed of cards. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly that's my favorite of the LCGs because that's kind of the feeling I want. It feels the most like an adventure. Whereas I think Marvel Champions, for better or worse, at least for me, feels very much like a pure card game in a lot of ways. And there's nothing wrong with that but it doesn't interest me kind of thematically as much. I I certainly don't feel as much as you do, Peter. Maybe I haven't played it as much. I mean, I know I haven't played it as much as you, Uh, but maybe playing it more would help me feel this. But besides maybe like the really big uh, tax you can play that costs a lot, I honestly feel like I'm doing things heroic. In fact, I think I might have felt more heroism in two games that do have boards, which is Hour of Need, which should be coming from Blacklist someday. (laughs) I think it's in the US. Where's my game, Blacklist? (laughs) And then the other one is uh, Union City Alliance that Steve and I covered when it was on Kickstarter. That's a like deck builder with actually moving around in heroes. And yeah, I definitely feel like more like a hero when I'm kind of going around helping people and not just punching uh, the boss a lot. Whereas Marvel Champions feels almost more like, you know, it's kind of like a card-based boss battler in a way, right? Absolutely. It's funny, the difference is also, you said progressing through locations. In Lord of the Rings, your main objective is to progress through those locations and get to the end. Whereas Marvel Champions is the exact opposite. Yeah. You're trying to stop the boss from progressing through the locations. 
I, I agree with you. I think Lord of the Rings, I think that is where there's going to be an appeal. There's more of a narrative. And that's the other thing I guess I didn't think of. When, especially when it comes to card games, I think Dominion people describe as themeless, but I don't think people would describe Clank as themeless. Just having that visual feel, I think, does add more theme. Laying out the map with Arkham Horror does get you more into the theme, even though you're just running around fighting monsters, doing other stuff, the same stuff you're doing in all these other games. But having that board presence there, having that token moving around adds to theme. So I think that is a big pro to having a board. And I agree with you that Arkham is the most thematic of those games, even though I prefer Marvel Champions myself for the tactical card play. It doesn't mean one's better than the other. I do feel like, though, it's easier to introduce theme with a board because, look, you put all the flavor text you want on a card. After a while, I'm going to stop reading it, especially if it's a lot of flavor text, because I'm worried about the card effects, the game effects, things like that. Every time I got to read one of those, it pulls me out of the gameplay of it. But if I'm seeing it on the board, if things are moving around, I'm more invested in the story. I want to read that flavor text. I want to read what's coming next. So I do think adding the board adds flavor as well. Well, I don't think it's just having the board, but I think it's also often having kind of your avatar because a lot of these card games we're talking about can be somewhat personless games. Like I'm thinking of Marvel Legendary. You don't feel like you're any one of those heroes. Well, because you're not. Oh, you're right. You're not. You're just like building your team or your shield. I don't really know what you are. Well, it doesn't Um, even make sense because everybody's building the same team because you all can buy from the same heroes. Sure, sure, sure. That's nothing against the game. That's just, again, you know, it's just the theme is kind of weird. And also like, you know, trains added a board, but you're not on the board. (laughs) You don't have a character you're moving around. So I certainly didn't feel like the theme there. I think having like Clank, having a character that is you and movement stats for yourself. Final Girl having a character that is you and you move around instead of kind of this abstract version of you is uh, certainly stronger, at least for theme. Again, it doesn't mean anything for mechanics and whether the game is actually more fun or more engaging uh, for certain types of gamers. But I think for theme-wise, yeah, an immersion, it can be good. Well, and something else I just thought of, and it kind of goes with the thought I had earlier, but I, I think it's crystallizing and clarifying in my mind a little bit, is when you have a board your focus goes to the board. Mm. So you don't want to have as complex and interactions in your hand. You want to do something quickly that affects the board. And so that's where you can focus. Where these card games, like Marvel Champions, the interactions in my hand, which is why I think some people feel disconnected when they're playing that game. Yeah. It's like, well, you're dealing with your hand. I'm dealing with my hand because all that interaction is in your hand. Everything you're doing is in your hand. Even if it affects the central area, a lot of the choices and a lot of the complexity comes from what you're doing in your hand. Whereas a lot of these games with a board, it's like, okay, I'm just moving two spaces. Well, that's an easy enough card to play. I'm doing an attack. I'm doing whatever. And so the complexity isn't in your hand anymore. The complexity is down on the board. And so I I think that's probably a good lesson to take away. And I think some of these games that have tried to put more complexity in your hand and have a board have really lost, at least me anyway, with that multiple complexities. Well, I mean, it's it's more mental load on the player, right? And I think uh, this goes to Mage Knight as a good example. I love Mage Knight. I know you do too, Peter, but I personally don't want to play it with more than myself. <laughs> you know, I don't want to play it more than solo. It's some, some people do. They don't mind like playing like a four or five hour game of Mage Knight. But for me, the, the complexity of the cards interactions and where I can move, like just moving across a tile in Mage Knight could be a very complex puzzle, you know, and without the board, a lot of that would go away. And there's nothing wrong with that. I love how complex Mage Knight gets. 
but I don't want to watch somebody else taking their turn for 20 minutes while I twiddle my thumbs, <laughs> you know? Well, I think that game can be played more simultaneously than we've ever played it before. Also. Yeah, that's a good point, especially co-op where you aren't hurting each other at all. So the simultaneity would work. Well, fine. absolutely. Yeah, I wouldn't want to play competitively ever. So but co-op, I think you could probably play it simultaneously and you'd probably like it a lot more in that situation because there isn't really downtime. So, so are there any negatives besides like complexity and maybe taking the attention away from the cards if you want the focus to be on your card game? It can be a space issue. Certainly Hostage Negotiator doesn't take up nearly as much space as Final Girl does. Yep, yep, yep. Well, and I guess that also goes to uh, price. Like if you're trying to price out your Absolutely. game, you're, you're certainly getting into a new, next tier of game price generally <laughs> if you're adding a board and the components for the board. And... There are some beautiful, very cheap, very cheap to produce card games that are great, you know, and you don't always need to throw in a board just because we said you had to. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting because games like Dominion were $50 coming out of the box, right? And it's like, well, wait a minute, it's just a bunch of cards. And it definitely pushes up the price point, but that had those cards, but also had the board element that were around $50. But I guess you're getting a lot less cards and a lot less variety. So I guess that could be a con too for the same price. You know, it's either the price is higher or you're going to lose out on some variety. Although what you lose out in variety of number of cards, maybe you make up for in variety because your actions can be varied because that board adds another element to it. The other thing when I said space, not only table space, but also space in your storage I know this is a big deal for you and me. You know, you have that shelf life series (laughs) where you're culling a lot of the games in your collection. And a lot of times it's because you don't have space in your house for it anymore. And forget your house. What about when you carry it? Marvel Champions has gotten to the point for me where I've got so many cards and so much stuff. I talk to people. I'm like, all right, who's bringing their Marvel Champions stuff to PAX? And the answer is nobody because it's just too much to carry at this point. Now you can break it down and take part of it with you, but then that involves a whole pre-planning process as well. So I think that can be a negative too when something gets overexpanded or when it gets bigger. You've talked about how you broke down the boxes, which are one of the coolest things for Final Girl. Well, that's because it's going to take up a lot of space if you don't. So you've managed to fit it all in one regular board game size box. But if you hadn't done that, it would have taken up a lot more shelf space. Well, actually, yeah, it's surprising. I looked at how big all the boxes for Final Girl World put together. And it's like barely any bigger than the box that I put them in. (laughs) I I just like to have one thing I can carry, though. Although the nice thing about Final Girl in its original form is you can just like take the core box and one box or two boxes and you have everything you need. So I'm just kind of dumb, I think. (laughs) Well, you you like to minimize things. I mean, you hadn't even opened up the miniatures yet, which I know you didn't play with. I, I... I opened them up. That was the first thing I did. I opened up the <laughs> miniatures and I played with them only exclusively the whole time. Isn't that a great encapsulation? I never even opened in all the plays I've had of it since I got it and reviewing it and all that. I've not even opened up the miniature box that they sent us. And Peter opened it up as the very first thing he did. Yeah, well, I asked before I left. I was like, wait a minute. You don't have this open. Can I open it? You're like, yeah, go for it. I'm like, yep, doing that. You know, it's like when Pandemic came out with the miniatures. I mean, your pawn is just as good as a miniature in that situation, but not for me. I wanted to have them little miniatures. And they had one for each job. It was really cool. So, of course, I'm going to buy that extra 20 bucks cost of the game. Not everybody needs that. But for me, it increases the value. And I, I, the only reason I'm talking about all this is I think it helps you understand our perspectives as well. And it also helps you understand that not every gamer is going to be the same. And what brings value to somebody isn't going to bring value to everybody else. And I know and Jason had this discussion about like this deluxification, things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's it's gatekeeping people. 
But for me, I do like having several options because for people like you, you might not want the miniatures or care about them. For people like me, I do want it. I don't think it's a lesser version. I think it's a different version of the game for some people and for some games even because we talked about Mythic Battles Pantheon. When you got over a certain amount of stuff, it became overwhelming. You didn't want it anymore. So if they're over deluxifying it to the point where you don't want to play it anymore, I think that's an issue. But I think it's good to have different versions of the game because there are different types of gamers and not everybody wants to pay that extra 20 bucks to have those miniatures. For me, I think it's worth it. But for some people, they're not going to think it's worth it. And honestly, for a game I love, I think it's worth it. And for a game I don't like as much, I'm not going to spend that extra 20 bucks on it. I like having the variety and the options out there. I think we're in a very good space right now for games. But, you know, that's just one person's opinion. I mean, I love having the variety. I just wish, uh, and I know this is a tough thing, like it's a psychology. I just wish more gamers were able to say, I don't need that deluxified thing because I think the uh, the fear of not getting everything is so strong with a lot of people that even if they are like me and don't care about miniatures, they might get them anyway sometimes. Sure. Anyway, uh, thanks everybody for listening. There you go, some thoughts on uh, card games, having some level of kind of spatial awareness and board play and movement. And also a positive review of Final Girl. And again, uh, Peter and I are going to jump onto video and record our top five horror movies. Uh, So if you want to uh, check that out, go uh, look at our Patreon page. You can see uh, we have some cool exclusive content coming every month. And don't worry, it's not going to decrease the amount of podcasts you're going to get. It's not decreasing the amount of other video content you're going to get. And a lot of it, to be honest, isn't game related. I know you said you're doing something game related, but a lot of this, we're not going to put our best content behind this firewall here. We're going to put extra content so you get to know us a lot better as people. But, you know, if you're already absorbing all of our content, you know, this is just going to be something else for you to absorb from us. Yeah, that that was very important for me when I, like, proposed this idea to the team. I'm never going to do, like, one of my reviews behind the Patreon paywall. You know what I mean? I'm not going to do the only playthrough we do of a game behind the paywall. I, I want it to be, like, bonus stuff, like top 10 lists and things that are fun but aren't really... The main reason I do the stuff we do with One Stop Co-op Shop, at least personally for me, is to provide a resource to people. Like, I want to learn how to play this game. I want to see if this game is good for me. That's why I do the playthroughs and reviews and stuff I do. So I don't want to ever, like, take that away just because you didn't pay some sum because not everyone can afford that sum. And, and again, it's gatekeeping. So it's just fun extra stuff, like Peter said, not like the core content of the uh, the channel or anything. Cool. All right, everybody. Well, thanks for joining us. Make sure you're following us on YouTube on both our One Stop Co-op Shop channel and on our One Stop Co-op Shop stream channel. Make sure you check out our Discord. That is a completely free pace that you can go visit. I know a lot of times people charge or make people join their Patreon just to have access to the Discord. We don't do that. It's absolutely free, and you can check the show notes for that as well. And if you do want to support us and if you want to see some of our extra stuff, go ahead and join Patreon. All right. Have a great time, everybody. Bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week for another top five list. Hey Mike. Yeah. Kill, 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 kill. Kill, 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 Wait, were they saying kill? Like for to me to my ears it was always like it was like breathing sounds, but was it words? I don't know. I'm just going with it. I I gotta go watch like after we're done talking, man. By the way, one more thing before we go. I'm in the house.
No. Oh, dude, we should play some games, actually. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling from the Skype upstairs. No. 